Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church and Pastor Josh LaGrange. This week, Pastor Josh will continue to lead us through the book of Genesis and show us many of God's truths involving sin, wrath, and salvation, and how these truths echo throughout Scripture. You can join us by turning your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, as Pastor Josh LaGrange delivers his sermon titled, Foreshadows of the Gospel. Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them. But the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whoever they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also was flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Noah became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. And then God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I'm about to destroy them with the earth. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. You shall make the ark with runes and shall cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you shall make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark and finish it to a cubit from the top and set the door of the ark on the side in it. You shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. Behold, I, even I, am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life from under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall perish. But I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall enter the ark. You and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh you shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds after their kind and of the animals after their kind. Of every creeping thing on the ground after its kind. Two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. As for you... Take for yourself some of all the food which is edible and gather it to yourself and it shall be food for you and for them. Thus Noah did according to all that God commanded him. So he did. Let's bow and let's pray. Oh, our Father, we cry out to you for mercy in the name of Jesus Christ. God, humanly speaking, what's about to happen right here, it looks real simple. A guy will speak and people will listen. But Lord, your word tells us that what is going on here is so much bigger 
that a cosmic war is raging. And that even right now there is a battle being fought over what we will do with your word. Over whether we will listen and heed and obey and be transformed. So God, I, I cry out to you for grace and I ask God, when? Father, please subdue us to yourself. I pray for your sons and daughters who have gathered here this morning. God, we, we long for more of you. We want to see your truth. We want to be transformed. We want to be sanctified. So God, please show us. Show us your glory. Show us the, the wonder and the grace of what you have done in your son, Jesus Christ. Father, build us up, strengthen us, convict us. Everything that we need to happen, whatever it is, every soul in this room most needs. Please, God, make it happen. Father, and I pray for those in the room that have not yet responded to the gospel, not yet come to Christ to be saved. God, we, we beg that you will show them in a way that they feel deeply the wrath and the judgment that is to come for their sins. And God, that they will then run to Christ for refuge. Please, God, bless us in this time. I, I desperately, desperately need your help. Protect every word I say. Bless my mind, my heart, my lips, oh God. Please give me grace to be useful to your people, to feed from your word, and bless all of us, oh God, to worship through receiving and responding to your word. It is for your glory that we come to you, and we ask all this in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. There's a scene from Tolkien's uh, Lord of the Rings series that I want you to imagine in your mind for a moment. Uh, it, it's the scene of uh, the battle at Helm's Deep. Now, if you like that kind of thing, um, I think I even saw some people start shaking with giddiness, okay? Like, don't dress up like a hobbit. Just calm down, okay? Like, if you're geeking out right now, okay, that's, that's great. But behave, okay? Some of you enjoy that kind of thing. But if, if you don't know what we're talking about, you're not into that. Here, here's a little bit of the, of the scene. The men of Middle-earth are gathered under the reign of the rightful king. And they're in a fortified position, a mountain behind them, strong towers of a fortress before them, but an army of orcs, under the rule of the Dark Lord, have marched by the hundreds of thousands to come and make war. And so in the book, in the movie, you have this scene that then takes place. But for the sake of an illustration this morning, I want to I break from the story. So just stop right there and let's pretend something else happened in the story. But you got the scene. You've got the rightful king, the armies of the rightful king. You've got these armies coming against him and resisting him. I want you to imagine for a moment that instead of what really happened, Gandalf walks to front and center looking out over these armies before him, and he addresses the enemy. And Gandalf speaks, and he tells them, you have marched against the rightful king. I am declaring to you, you will fail. Every soul that resists the rule of the rightful king, you will die. And there will be no mercy. But the king has sent me to offer you a gift. Any one of you who drops your weapons right now 
and you walk over to this gate right here. We will let you in through this gate. And if you will come in and bow your knee and swear allegiance to the rightful king, not only will you not die, the king is willing to make you full citizens of his kingdom. He does not need you. If all of you stay, he will defeat every one of you and could defeat twice as many of you. But he is offering you grace. At that moment, a narrow door opens. And for a few minutes, no one does anything. But then after a bit, there are some orcs who begin to take the king up on this offer. To the amazement of some of their once fellow soldiers, they drop swords, they remove their helmets, and they begin to walk towards this narrow gate. As they walk up there, some of the orcs are cursing and deriding them. But still they march on. A portion enter through that door, and one by one, they drop a knee, and they swear allegiance to the rightful king. And when the last one has come through the door, the gate closes, the battle commences, and the rightful king defeats his enemy. But, but fast forward just a little bit here. This kingdom now has new citizens. And these smelly orcs have never lived in civilized society before. The society they once came out of, the life they came out of under the rule of the Dark Lord, they did whatever they want, they behaved in a different way. But now they are finding in this new kingdom, there's a new law. There are new expectations. There's a new culture. A new atmosphere. It takes these smelly orcs a little while to adjust. Occasionally they have to be corrected and even rebuked. It takes a long time, but slowly they begin to live in a new way. They begin to behave. They begin to speak in a new way. They adopt the new culture of this new kingdom. And eventually the day comes where their lives look just like the lives of those who were citizens before them. But, but I want you to track this. The day they left their resistance, the day they entered the gate, dropped their knee, and swore allegiance to the rightful king, on that day they became citizens of the kingdom. The king was no longer at war with them. They were no longer enemies. They were accepted by the king. But when it came to everyday life, it, it took a while to learn how to do that. It took a while to undo old habits and learn new ways. They became citizens in a moment. But the process of living like citizens took some time. Well, I'm hoping that as I've described that, you've been able to track biblical truths very easily. But, but I do want to spell this part out just, just very quickly and very clearly. When the Bible uses the word righteousness, it refers to it in, in two different ways. The Bible uses that word in, in at least two different ways in the Bible. There is a moment that we are declared righteous with God. There is a moment that you can become right with God. But then there is also after that a, a process of practically learning to live righteously. So there's a moment. And listen, it is very important that you understand that you hear this word moment. 
There is an instant. There is an occasion that you can be made right with God, accepted by God. And it's really critical that you hear this next part, okay? Because I'm going to tell you how that happens. The moment that you respond to Jesus Christ, lay down your arms of resistance. That's what sin is. We got to get the definition of sin out of our heads that it's just simply mistakes. Sin is resistance to God. The moment we lay down resistance to God and we come to him, so the Bible calls that repentance. Stop resisting, turn the heart in submission to God and we come to place our trust and our faith in Jesus Christ, the rightful king, the Lord of all, the only savior. At that moment, at that instant, you are made right with God. It is really critical that you hear that I know that there's the idea out there and I know that there are churches and preachers who present a way of being right with God that you go try to be good boys and girls, you go try to do a bunch of good deeds and make sure you give us a bunch of money and then one day you'll be right with God. They are absolutely wrong in their entire books of the Bible that declare that's wrong. You are made right with God in a moment, not based on who you are. Not based on your goodness, but on the mercy of God. He offers peace if you will lay down your resistance and come to him. And so you must be saved and to gain eternal life, you must be a citizen of Christ's kingdom. And that happens when you turn to Christ in faith. You must call on the name of the Lord to be saved. You need to say with your lips, Jesus is Lord. You need to say that to him. Bible says you need to say that to some people. You need to be baptized, which is God's way of declaring to the world, I am Christ. I belong to him. And so when we're thinking about the first way that the Bible uses the word righteous, this is it. There's a moment that you're accepted as right with God through Christ. But the second way that the Bible will use the word righteous or righteousness is in reference to life and behavior. It's in reference to the way that you live, meaning you can live a righteous life. And then even under that category, the Bible will speak in a couple of ways here. The first way is there is a full and complete righteousness in the sight of God, which would be to obey every single command of God and never sin one time in the entirety of your life. And it's in that way of using this word that the Bible will say God looks down from heaven and sees there is none righteous, not even one. You may think that you're very good, but you are not righteous according to that definition of the word. Only the Lord Jesus is the only man to have lived completely righteous in that way. And so you, you need to know if you are trusting in your inner goodness or your really good heart you think you have or, or trying to tip some scales to enter heaven, you will never be that righteous that you earn your way into heaven. But for the soul that has turned to Christ to be saved, and you have entered the kingdom of God. You are right with God in that first sense. We might call that legal righteousness. Legal righteousness. The Bible shows that you can go on to live a righteous life. No, 
not righteous to the degree of complete and utter perfection, but similar to the way we use the word holy. Can you be holy? Yes, you can. Now, not holy like God is holy, but according to what you're capable of, you can live a life that God looks on, is pleased with, and he says it's holy. And you can live a righteous life. No, not righteous enough to be in heaven, to earn your way to heaven. But after being made right with God and having legal righteousness, you can go on to live a life that pleases God and is righteous in that sense, according to what you're capable of. Well, chapter 6 that we just read here deals a lot with righteousness. It only mentions the word one time, but the whole chapter is about it. God describes the world. He says the world is not righteous. Well, which way do you mean, Pastor? All of them. The world is not righteous. And in Noah's day, out of the entire population of the earth, there was only one man who walked with God. It was Noah himself. And in the chapter, Noah is called righteous. Well, which, which way do we mean here if the Bible uses that in a couple of different ways? Well, it's referring to his life and his behavior told that he was blameless, that he walked with God. Remember that same phrase that we saw about Enoch last week? Noah walked with God. But understand this, if Noah's life is righteous, then that means he had come to God and had been made legally righteous before him. You gotta comprehend this. There is no righteous life without legal righteousness before God. You need to comprehend that. The Bible shows this. You cannot be righteous in your life unless you first come to God in the way that he declares in order to be made right with him. The world has some nice people and even some moral people according to the human law. But according to the sight of God, there is no righteous life unless you first come to God and have legal righteousness with him. But Noah had done this. Hebrews 11 goes on to tell us Noah had trusted in the Lord. He was accepted by God. Noah went on to practically live an obedient life. The world around him was unrighteous. But also remember this, friends. Unrighteousness comes in degrees. There's little and lots. God is going to judge all unrighteousness. Every soul that rejects God, every soul that resists him, every soul that defies his law, that refuses to come to him like he says, come to me, God is going to judge every unrighteous person. Sometimes that happens even in this life. So there is a day of judgment to come where God is going to address all evil that has ever occurred, all unrighteousness. But sometimes even in this life, when unrighteousness reaches a level of disgustingness and, and of, that it provokes God to anger, provokes him to where he feels he must act, sometimes even in this life, in temporal ways, God will work in judgment. God will bring wrath even here. But we understand there is coming the day when God is going to deal with all unrighteousness fully and completely. There is a day of wrath to come. And what we have beginning in chapter 6 and running in chapters 7, 8, and then we finish up in 9. We won't do all that today. That will be coming over the next week and so. We have the first introduction to the wrath of God. 
I mean, yeah, it's been there. We saw the curse in Genesis 3. We saw another curse put on Cain. Last week, chapter 5, we saw the introduction of death. But chapter 6 is the first way we see the whole scale wrath of God. It's the first time in the Bible we see this spelled out. God is going to deal with every sin. God is going to wipe sin off of this planet. He's going to fully and completely deal with evil. And this is the first time that we see this. And listen, friends, not only is the flood, not only is this the introduction to the wrath of God in this way, it is the most severe act of judgment the world has ever seen and will ever see until the return of Christ and that last act of judgment where God once and for all wipes sin out of his kingdom. But never forget this about our God. We're going to talk a lot about wrath. We're going to talk a lot about judgment. He is a God of wrath. He is a God of judgment, and that is part of his glory. And you and I as believers need to rejoice in the wrath of God. We need to see his glory in his righteousness, in his judgment. We need to see the goodness. We need to be thankful for that. But he is also a God of exceeding grace. And we see all of this put on display throughout these next several chapters as we look at this. So here's how we're going to divide this chapter up. Dividing up chapter 6 if you're a note taker. Three sections. Sin, wrath, and salvation. Now, when you hear that outline, I hope you're saying, well, pastor, that's the gospel. Yes. Yes. And listen to me, friends. You can go to 50 other passages of the Bible, and it will have the exact same outline as chapter 6, chapter six does. Sin, wrath, and salvation. Friends, this is the story of the Bible. Guys, the, the central idea of the Bible, you got to believe I feel a burden to get this right, okay? If I say something that big... Central idea of the Bible, okay? I feel a burden to get this right. This is the central idea of the Bible. The glorious God is displaying his glory by saving a people to himself through Jesus Christ. If you want to know what the whole storyline of the Bible is, that's it right there. This is what God is about. This is what God is doing. This is his agenda in the world. And because of that, that's what the Bible is about. Okay, like... The Bible's not about one thing, but then it misses the point of reality, okay? This is what God is doing. The Bible shows us God's agenda. The glorious God is displaying his glory. You're not going to understand the Bible, and you're not going to understand God until you comprehend this. God is doing all things to display, to show, to draw a people to be in all of his glory, fall on our faces, and glory in his glory. Worship him for the glory that we see. The glorious God is displaying his glory and the greatest display of his glory is Christ. I mean, God displays his glory when you watch a sunset. There's a bigger display of glory. It's Christ. It's what God has done in Christ. God is displaying his glory by saving a people to himself through Jesus Christ. As I say that sentence, the only part of that that is not in Genesis 6 is the part about Jesus. And that's because God chose to prepare the world for the coming of Christ 
foundations laid, truths shown so that when Jesus came, the world was ready. And we are going to find that even here, there are four shadows of Jesus. There are four shadows of the gospel here. What we have in Genesis 6 is one of the big first ways that God shows his agenda in history. So let's begin to walk through this. So section number one will be, let's talk about the sin that we see here. Uh, verse one begins to paint a picture of what the world looks like at this time. Men begin to multiply. If mankind is a race of sinners, then as men increase, sin increases. As people multiply, sin multiplies. God then goes on to describe the wickedness of the earth. Let me take you on a little bit of an overview through this because this is the way we're approaching some of these. Verse five, we're shown the wickedness on the earth is great. Their thoughts are evil, their intentions are evil, and God even says every thought and every intention is tainted. Not only is there a lot of sin, but listen, listen to me, even the good works are tainted with the poison of selfish motives. Uncleanness is mixed into everything humanity does. Nothing is totally pure. Now, does that only apply to the ancient world, but now we're just really great and got it figured out? No, okay, rest of the Bible goes on to explain this right here, that not only do we do evil, we have evil acts, and then we have acts that we do that are, that are trying to honor God. But the Bible goes on to show that it's still the case today. Every act that we do still has uncleanness mixed into it. There is a way to do good works unto God, but God has to give grace in that. When we do it by faith and it is cleansed by the blood of Christ, there is a way that our efforts can please God. But we have to understand this or we will not understand human nature. You and I have never done a deed that was entirely pure coming from us. If that idea is new to you, this isn't what you hear from the culture, right? If this idea is new to you, sometime this afternoon, go read Romans 3. And you'll see some more commentary and explanation on these things. All right, but we'll say more about that in a moment. Verse 6, the Lord is grieved by it all. You need to understand what rebellion does to God. He's not indifferent. That's the, word, the way the world speaks of God a lot of times, isn't it? That God doesn't care. God is indifferent, almost like he's the grandpa who winks at the, the child's rebellion. God is not indifferent. God is grieved to his heart by sin, by resistance. No, God was not taken by surprise. But still the same, there are things in our lives we know are going to happen, but still yet we grieve when they happen. You know you're going to lose people you love in your life. You will still grieve when it happens. God, all of this is still a part of God's secret plan. He was not taken by surprise by sin, but it still grieves his heart. You keep going through verse 11. He shows the earth is corrupt. Verse 11 again, the earth is filled with violence. Verse 12, it's all corrupted. Verse 13, it's so defiled, so far spoiled that there is no tweak that will fix it. The brokenness is so catastrophic it is going to take something supernatural to set it right. And the story of what begins here in chapter 6 and runs through chapter 9 is a way that God is going to show some things really about the magnitude of sin. 
He's going to show his judgment. He's going to show salvation. He's going to show mercy and love. But it will also show this. As catastrophic and big as the flood was, it didn't fix it all. Because so long as even a good man, but who has sin is on the earth like Noah, sin will increase again. Whatever the ultimate fix is going to be, it's got to be bigger even, even than a flood. And so we keep going through these things. Now, the chapter has, has some mysteries. For instance, in verse 2, who are these sons of God who sleep with daughters of men? There's been a few things suggested here. In modern times, you've got to understand kind of modern bias. We run away from everything supernatural, okay? Just kind of a modern bias is there. Modern times, it's been suggested. Maybe these were the sons of Seth uh, who went to daughters of Cain and produced Children who then were tainted with evil and things. Uh, I don't think that that's what the text is indicating. I think the New Testament informs us a little bit of this. Wish we had more time to go into it deeper. You could do that in your own study. But I do want to let you know that historically speaking, here's the way that this has been taken. And what I believe the New Testament indicates. In other places in the Bible, sons of God is a reference to angels. Look at the first couple chapters of Job. The New Testament goes on to talk about angels who did not keep their proper abode and then were sentenced by God. And if you look at 2 Peter in the book of Jude, there are some references in here. And I think it seems to indicate that we have reference to angels who slept with, took human form, slept with human women. We've got questions and mysteries about that. We've got another one. There in verse 4, we have this reference to the Nephilim. And while we do not know for sure, Nephilim is used one other place in the Bible, and it seems to indicate a race of unusually large and robust warriors who were on the earth. You might think maybe along the lines of the Norse Vikings or something like this who created havoc and violence all around them. Both of these have some mystery to them, but here is the thing we take away and the thing that God is showing Violence, wickedness, possibly by fallen angels and men, bringing corruption to the earth. And we get the idea of the sin that was on the earth. But to finish out this point, let, let me highlight something that we're shown here that, that's really, really, it's really significant. And I think that for some, might help you turn a corner in understanding some truths of the Bible. Jump down to verses 11 and 12 for a second. And, and I might even encourage you to underline a couple phrases here. Look at verse 11 and see what it says. Now the earth was corrupt. Here's a phrase that I would encourage you to underline. In the sight of God. Jump down to verse 12. I think I would encourage you to underline this phrase. God looked on the earth and behold, it was corrupt. When we talk about the depravity of man and we say some of these things that are so contrary to the voice of the culture, when we say things like man is not basically good, we are evil, we have a sin nature, we are born with original sin, every part of us has been affected by the fall. When we say things like that, the world mocks. And the world disagrees. Let's be honest, you and I as Christians can struggle with that as well, can struggle to see it. Uh, I've mentioned to you before, 
that when I first became a Christian, this is probably the number one truth that gave me a hard time. And what I mean is, here I'm seeing the Bible say something. I'm seeing the Bible say that men's hearts are hostile to God. And yet when I looked at the world as an 11-year-old boy, I didn't see it. The Bible says evil. I look at the world and I see nice people. I've got nice teachers. I've got nice neighbors. How, how does this work that's here? And it confused me. So, so here's something I want, I want to try to help with. Because I suspect that this is a common difficulty as well. I want to give you three reasons why we sometimes struggle to see what the Bible teaches about the sinfulness of man. Three reasons why we struggle to see the corruption of our hearts. Number one. We do not completely understand righteousness, holiness, and godliness. We don't know what it is. Have you ever heard the phrase nose blind? Uh, nose blind is whenever you have a smell in your house, and you've lived with it for so long, you get used to it. It's very common amongst bachelors and college-age young men. Someone walks into their dorm room, gets hit with this puke-inducing wall, and they're going, what? Okay, what's going on? Okay, what happens there is there's a, there's a principle. When you're around something for a long time, you eventually get used to it. Friends, one of the things we've got to comprehend is you and I have lived with sin. We might say sin is just the air that we have breathed from the time that we have entered this world. And there are times where something evil can happen right in front of us and we don't feel that it's evil. The problem is that we don't understand what righteousness is what true godliness and true holiness is. And that begins to change when you immerse yourself in the Bible. That's why we need the law of God. Whenever you begin to study the word, you begin to understand what real righteousness is. And then we begin to feel things that are evil. When you first became a Christian, there are some things you started to feel bad about that you didn't used to feel bad about, okay? You're understanding righteousness. The Holy Spirit is instructing you. So that's the first reason. Here's the second why we struggle to see the corruption of human nature. The pride of our hearts does not want to believe bad things about ourselves. And this will be a problem till we die, friends. Self-deception and a blindness to our own sins. Have you ever had to confront someone on faults and sin? What is the normal human response when a fault is pointed out? Defensiveness? Denial? Argue? No, no, you don't understand me. There might be overwhelming evidence and 10 people all saying it. And still there'll be this denial. The problem is what we want. We believe what we want to believe. And so we have a pride that gets in our way. But here's number three. It's the most important, and it's the one that relates to verses 11 and 12. Why we struggle to see the corruption of man. We fail to see from God's perspective. We fail to see through the eyes of God. Listen, listen friends. We can have a man-centered way of thinking, man-centered way of looking at all things, and as opposed to a God-centered way of looking at the world. And friends, the beautiful thing about the Bible is it shows us God's perspective. Listen, the Bible's the only place you get that. The Bible, the Bible is the only place in existence where you get God's thoughts, God's words. 
If you think about it, everywhere else in, in the world, everything else is written from human perspective. Everything else is from man's point of view. I'm not saying it's never right. right? Your math book is right because God has made an observable world. Okay, But the Bible is the only place where from the throne of God, you get what God sees. We wouldn't know God's thoughts unless he told us his thoughts. And we get this in the scriptures. One of the most significant uh, statements in the Bible comes from Psalm 14. It's in some other places as well. Same thing. But here's what Psalm 14 says. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who seek after him. What does God see when he looks down from heaven? We tend to think of everything from our perspective. And we fail to take into account what God sees. Friends, this world is from God. It's all about God. And it is for him. From him, through him, and to him are all things. The universe does not revolve around you. The universe revolves around God. And hear this clearly. God defines reality. He's the standard. He's the judge. He's the king. He's the lawgiver. He's the creator. He's the one who sits on the throne and overlooks all of the cosmos. You and I do not define reality. God does. And the Bible, whenever it speaks, is not just telling you what one being thinks. The Bible is telling you what is. The Bible is telling you reality as it actually is. Kind of like when you read a novel and there's a narrator. Jim drove his truck down the road listening to the radio. What he didn't see was the deer that was about to jump out in front of him. When you're reading the scriptures, you're reading the perspective of the all-seeing, all-knowing narrator who sees things exactly as they are. It's not just God's opinion. It's what is. And we cannot see things precisely as they are. Our perspective is always skewed, always biased. We do not see all things. I cannot even see into one person's heart. God sees into every heart of the 7.2 billion people on this planet. Our judgments are not pure. The Bible is the one place where you get the perspective of heaven. And we see what God sees when he looks down on the earth. And one of the biggest reasons why we fail to see the corruption of man is we fail to think about it from what God sees. As God looks on the creation that he made to be holy, what does God see? God sees that man has corrupted himself. God sees that the world has been tainted and spoiled. God sees that we are wasting our lives and we ruin the paradise that he created. You may look around and say, I don't think it's that bad, but you do not define reality. God does. And by the way, do you see the complete and utter arrogance of, of, of understanding this, of everyone who looks at biblical morality and says that God is wrong? Like, do you see the arrogance, the infinitesimal little creature says to the omniscient, all-knowing, all-sovereign God who sees everything, you're wrong about marriage. I don't, you don't know what you're talking about. That is utter arrogance and ridiculousness. 
God is the sovereign one who sees all and knows all. God defines reality and God has issued the declaration. Mankind is unclean. And unless you are cleansed, you will. Let's go to number two. Because sin is so vile, so repulsive, because sin angers God, he's going to do something about it. That something is called wrath. So a, a few weeks back, I asked you or gave you an illustration. Let me repeat it on what wrath is. You fathers, I want you to imagine that someone came to sexually assault your daughter. What do you do and what do you feel? Got the answer in your head? Okay, that's wrath. That's wrath. And it is a good and right reaction. What a, what a pansified culture that is, that is misunderstanding that wrath in a just way is good and is righteous. God is going to deal with sin because sin saddens and grieves his heart, but also provokes him to anger. We see the Bible show this several times. We saw it in Ezekiel 8. God says their idols are provoking me. Like poking the bear and saying, you're not going to do anything. You're not going to do anything. Eventually, God will act. It is a gracious thing that God is slow to anger. He is patient. You know evidence of that? You're breathing. We need to thank God that he is merciful, that he is slow to anger. But you poke the bear long enough and the bear shows you his might. God has chosen to delay his wrath, his final wrath, for a period of time. But the day is going to come when God does bring his wrath and fully execute justice. God is never cruel. He only gives punishment to the degree that the sin deserves. But again, God is the standard. God is the judge. God is the lawgiver. And he tells us that sin deserves a wrath that you may not think it does. He says that sin deserves death. He says that sin deserves the death penalty, physical death. But as we spent time talking about last week, you were made an eternal creature. You have a soul that was meant to go on, never be extinguished, never be destroyed. And when you pass from this life and into the next, does it make sense that if you reject God here, and you pass from this life into the next, you don't suddenly become like all beautiful. You will continue to be a sinner. See, sometimes people argue with God because they say, I don't think it's fair that you sin in a temporary life, but you get an eternal punishment. Here's what's short-sighted about that. You are not just being punished for temporary crimes. When you pass from this life, you hate God here, you will continue to hate God throughout eternity. And in fact, every indicator that I see from Scripture shows this, that whatever sin you have here only multiplies into the eons and eons ahead of you to where you are consumed by the hatred or the lust or the greed that once was in you here. There is eternal death that awaits those who resist God and refuse to come to him as he commands us to. But number three, God is going to judge all sin 
but we have another time that this is shown to us in the Bible, but it's probably the biggest example thus far. There is hope in the midst of the wrath of a way to escape his wrath. God's wrath will come, but there is a way to be saved. The account of the flood is the account of of God saving some from the judgment that they deserve. You, you, You need to not misunderstand the gospel. The story of the gospel when we talk about salvation is not the story of God saving innocent people from a bad man. Do you realize the story of the gospel is God saving sinners from the good justice that we deserve? The very one who gives the wrath is the one who saves. That's the story of the gospel. The story of the gospel for your life, if you're a Christian, you've turned to Christ, you are a bad man. You are a bad woman. But God offers a way for you to escape. God offers a way for you to come and be pardoned, be cleansed, be forgiven, be righteous, righteous by God's grace. And yes, even though Noah is called a righteous man, Noah had enough sin to deserve to die in a flood and enough sin to deserve a hell. But God offered forgiveness and acceptance. This is the deal of grace that God has offered to the world. You come to him by faith. Lay down the arms, place trust in him, and there is mercy. But watch this. How is Noah going to be saved? God makes the way. And that's the way it always is. If you are going to be saved from God's wrath, you will only get it by God's way. God gives Noah instructions to build an ark. Starting next week, we're going to start to get into the details. What did it look like? We're also going to, I'm going to try to ask some of those questions like, is this, can we really believe that this actually happened in things? The short answer is yes. But we're also told this in the New Testament. The New Testament tells us that Noah was a preacher. You know, you build a boat that is three football fields long. That attracts a little attention. Noah, what are you doing, you lunatic? Can you imagine the ridicule? Can you imagine the cursing and the deriding? Noah, what are you doing? The God of heaven is sending judgment. But there's a way that you can escape. Come. Come and enter the ark. And friends, do you see that once again, the critical issue is faith. It always boils down to this seed, this starting point. The critical issue is faith in turning. If you believe God, then you run to the ark. If you think it is ridiculous, then you laugh. You go on doing just as you please. You maybe get with friends and talk about how stupid it all is. And you laugh and you laugh. Until one day it begins to rain. But listen, friends, you and I have been given the same call as Noah. No, not to go build a boat, but to be a preacher, to be a herald of the judgment of God that is to come on the world and to declare there is a way that you can be saved. Friends, in the foreshadow of the gospel, Jesus is the ark. 
Jesus is the place of refuge that God has given for us to run to. If you are going to be saved from the wrath of God, then it will, you will only get it by God's way. And God's way is Christ. If you want to be right with God, if you want to be accepted into his kingdom, you must run to Christ. Stop resisting. Lay down your arms and place your faith in Christ. God heralds out in his word, you must be saved and Jesus is your refuge. Run to Christ. He is the rightful king, Lord of all, the only one who can save you. And in him, you will have mercy. And friends, when we take the Lord's Supper, these are among the many truths we celebrate. This is what we remember. This is what we rejoice. We're celebrating Christ as our refuge. Christ as our salvation. And so as we get ready to take here in just a second, let me, let me give just a kind of a few final instructions, tidbits here. And then we're going to have a moment where we pray. A few instructions to take in the Lord's Supper. If you're here visiting with us, you do not have to be a member um, to take with us. This is the instruction we give because it's a warning of the Bible. You must be a true Christian. You must have turned from your sins, believed on the Lord Jesus, called out to him to be saved. If you are confident that you are in Christ, we welcome you to partake with us. But there are warnings that I need to give you. If you are not saved, do not take. The Bible says it is a serious thing to handle this celebration right here. It is a serious thing and you will trample the blood of Christ. You will mock him if you partake in knowing you're not right with him. Because even to Christians, you sons and daughters of God in the room, we're specifically told, examine yourselves before you partake. There is to be heart searching, confession of sin, repentance of sin. That's why we try our best every time we take the Lord's Supper to tell you a week ahead of time. We are encouraging a week of self-examination, a week of, of asking God, show me my sin and confessing that to God. But before we partake here in just a second, we're going to give a couple minutes of silence for one last time for you to confess sin before we partake of this. While that's going on, whatever business with God you need to take care of, do it. If you have not turned to Christ, it can happen in a moment, in the two minutes while we pause and pray. You can enter the kingdom of God in that time, but you must call out to the name of Christ and believe on him. Any reconciliations that need to be made, any way that you need to get right with God, this is the time to do it. So let me ask you please to bow your heads, close your eyes, for just a couple of minutes, and then I'll close this in. Thanks for joining us, and we hope you enjoyed Pastor Josh LaGrange's sermon titled, Foreshadows of the Gospel. Tune in next week as he continues to lead us through the book of Genesis. True Vine Baptist Church also invites you to like our Facebook page or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.